Hello and welcome to the Alan Parry podcast where I have lovely conversations with fascinating people and then let you listen in. Today's guest is Colin Maddox. Among other things, Colin is the promoter of the hugely successful Grateful Fred's Americana Night in Southport in the northwest of England and he's also the bass player and co-vocalist for the Grateful Fred ukulele trio as well. Now I've known Colin for a few years but he's kept this story under his hat even from me, that is until now. And Colin's is an extraordinary tale of an ordinary lad and a lifetime in music. It's a journey that encompasses everyone from Sir Paul McCartney's sheepdog to the Queen herself. So I know you're going to enjoy this one so let's get straight to it and hear from the man himself, Colin Maddox. Okay, well, welcome, Colin. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Um, I'm really pleased to have you as an early guest. Um, yeah, because... quite, uh, quite flattered myself. Yeah, well, I've, I've, I've looked through your biography and I'm, I'm struck by what an interesting life you've led. Um, and I think it's fair to say that if I were to put this level of experiences, this number of experiences, I'd say there's very, very few people in in the world who've who've done these kind of things. I had no idea and I've known you for a few years, but you've yeah you've kept all this under your hat, Col. Uh yeah, well it's it's a lot <laughs> I'm so old now, I think when you <laughs> write them down it probably sounds a bit better than it was, you know. But, but uh, no, I don't know. I, my wife probably says I'm, I'm more of a messer than uh anything else. So probably I've been messing around for an awful long time. Your first guitar was at the age of fourteen, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, what, yeah what, well, what attracted you to to music as opposed to anything else that young fourteen year old lads get attracted to? <laughs> <laughs> I think that came just a, a year or two after. Um, <laughs> I think so. Long, got to remember, so, this is all so long ago, you know. Um, I, I think, like everything, but well, I'm pretty certain it was probably the Beatles. Uh, you know, definitely the Beatles, especially being in Liverpool, and. Um, but also, I can remember quite distinctly driving. My dad used to take us to Anglesey, and um, I remember being in the back of the Ford Anglia or whatever it was at the time. Uh, and actually, remember going around a Great Orm. You remember, the, you know, the Great oh, yeah. Orm in yeah. Landudno, and um, I think there's a tunnel there. I remember coming out, and my dad had the radio on, which was always usually rubbishy stuff in those days, particularly. You know, yeah, it was all crooners, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, before the war, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, I I remember I think it was Mr. Yes, it was Mr. Tambourine Man was on by the birds and uh, I didn't know it you know who it was or anything and I think if that all coincides no I don't know it can't coincide time wise can it really but I always remember that was the first song that made me really really want to get into playing and singing and everything you know the harmonies and the jingle jangly guitar but I think I bought the guitar prior to that maybe and went under the bed. You know the way I always did. Yeah, you you yeah. played them for a while. Your fingers hurt like hell because Absolutely. the strings were about an inch off the thing. You know, bought it from Hesse's. Um, from famous Hesse's, yeah. Yeah, what was the guy's name there? You know, and oh, I can't think of his name. Everybody who lives in Liverpool who bought a guitar from Hesse's will know the game, know the guy's name, and Jim Gretty. Right. Jim Gretty, and uh, I was with my mum and dad, and it was a five-pound guitar from Czechoslovakia. Yeah. A, a hideously, I think it was painted brown, you know, it wasn't <laughs> her. And uh, he, he played a uh, freight train, you know, like sort of finger style. And 
yeah. and said, if you, if you try hard enough, one day you'll be able to play this. Did you, so when you bought the guitar, was this kind of like a fancy and you, you didn't know how to play it yet or, or had, you, had you borrowed a mate's guitar or something like that? No, 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 I didn't. I hadn't. Uh, but there was, a lot of, there was a lot of guitars. In, I went to the Institute, the Liverpool Institute in town, which is now Lipper. Yeah. And, uh, and I was in the bottom stream, you know, it was a horrible school if you weren't in the A stream, you know. Yeah. So I was in the, what they call the remove, I think. And uh, I think they just wanted to remove you from the school, basically, you know. Right. So you were sort of left, left to pretty much your own devices a lot. So there was a lot of guitars. Yeah. You know, Paul, kids were buying guitars and bringing them in. So I probably messed around on one. But Paul McCartney and George Harrison both went to the same school, didn't they? They did, yeah. They, they. I think they. I think George Harrison had probably left the, the year I joined, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think Paul left a year or so before, and. Uh, uh, it, it, but it, that's probably where I picked up a guitar and, and then decided I wanted one, you know. Yeah, and within two years, you were in your first band. Tell us about that. Um, well, I left school and um, I wanted to be a musician then, even though I was no good particularly, you know what I mean? But And my dad was in business and uh, I remember, uh, you know, you know, you are, I wanted to go to art college. Yeah. Um, but he said, you're not going to art college. You, you know, these were the days when you did what your dad said, really. Yeah. And he said, you're going to business college. And uh, I went to Millbank College um, up in West Derby. Uh, but I was playing all the time. And then when I was at uh, West, when I was at Millbank, I met my, my best, my, still my best friend, Frank, Frank Robertson. And a guy called Les Robbins. We were both in the, in the same class. He was like all girls and about three guys, you know, because it was typing and commerce and everything else. Yeah, that was a good choice so, then, Cole. It was a great choice, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Although we were dead shy, you know, we used to go red every time anybody looked at us, you know, so <laughs> it was not that good for that. Um, but we, we had guitars, and uh, although Les and I had guitars, and uh, Frank wanted to be a drummer. Or it was he wanted to be in the band and he, he couldn't play the guitar. So, yeah. okay, you play the drums. And because we couldn't afford anything like that, he bought a pair of bongos, a set of bongos, you know. <laughs> so, and we were called the Buffalo Band Yeah. After, after the Buffalo Springfield, you know. We just thought that was a great name. And uh, they used to have a show there for all the students uh, called Amusorama, Mrs. Clark's Amusorama. So we put our name down and uh, we did... Um, that one, um, Morning Town Ride. Oh, yeah. By the New Seekers. Oh, no, by the Seekers, not the New Seekers. Um, <laughs> the God old knows, Seekers. <laughs> the old Seekers, yeah. The original Seekers, Seekers. And we did, uh, we did that, and that was our first... Uh, and God knows what it sounded like, you know. Um, but it was your parents who came, so you yeah. could sound rubbish, you know what I mean. So. so did you gig a lot with them, or was it mainly like the school stuff? Um, we, well, we we did gig a lot actually, um, you know, because it, it was in you know the, at the time there was a lot of gigs, a lot of places, pubs and places. We never got paid anything, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and I played. They they started a, or I maybe started a folk club at at Millbank, and uh, I remember the first performance I ever did. I was so embarrassed and shy, and just actually played with my back to the audience, you know. So you were performing with your your back to the audience, Carl. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it just seemed a sensible thing to do because of uh, you know I was petrified. But uh, as I say, I don't know what pretense I actually used to convince the audience what what audience that there was. You know that uh, this was a good idea. But um, I got past it, and then I suppose afterwards, after that, maybe I just realised that you can't get very far. You know, with your uh, back to the audience. In, no, uh, I, I suppose they must have thought it was like some really mystical guy. You know, they, well, yeah, there's probably a buzz around Liverpool about this band where they. 
Where they perform with their back to the audience. It, yeah, it could be. It could be. Maybe they thought it was like performance art or something. Yeah. It was a statement, you know. But uh, it's how, not bad. How, how have you got over the stage fright? It's a common thing. So any musicians listening in will be like, well, I get that. I get that myself, uh, you know. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I didn't, I, I didn't really suffer for it for, from it for very long. Yeah. Um, what do you and, think was the uh, thing that broke you out of it? Um, probably just repeatedly playing, isn't it? You know, yeah. and also playing with a band is always an awful lot easier, don't you find? You know, with other musicians and in like there's almost safety in numbers, if you know what I mean. I agree. Um, That's been my experience as well. When you when you're out there on your own, it's a little bit more exposing. Whereas if you mess up with your mates, you can kind of. Share the blame, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. There's a shoulder to lean on almost, isn't there, really? You know? Yeah. So so pretty soon after that, you had a, a record deal, which is an amazing story. I mean, not, not with that band, but with a fresh no. band. So, so tell, us, tell us what happened there. Well, um, the, the Buffalo band, we, we played and, 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 and we, we used to go to a thing called the 800 Club in, uh, in Birkenhead, which is just by the, the old Mersey, Birkenhead Mersey Tunnel entrance, which is a little side entrance, you know? Yeah. And uh, we, we, I don't know how we found that, but we used to go to all sorts of folk clubs and try and play, try and play like Gregson's Well, which was the Spinners Folk Club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we got thrown out of there for, for, for actually daring to speak, you know, while somebody was performing. And... Oh, you can't do that in the Folk Club, Carl. No, no, you can't, <laughs> which we found out very, very quickly. But then we used to go and different, do different ones. And, then for some, and people would tell you about other places you could play. It was all for free. So yeah. There was no money involved. But so the, we, we found this uh, place in uh, Birkenhead called the 800 Club. And um, we met an awful lot of people there. Um, and we used to do all sorts of different, you know, we used to do Fairport convention songs and, and this, that and the other. And, and there was the three of us in this in Buffalo band and, and only two of us sang and, and we didn't really do harmonies or anything like that. But I was very keen. I, 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 I liked singing more than, I like, I love playing and, and all the rest of it, but I, I much prefer singing, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So I, I very much like the mammoths and the papas, and I like the birds, and you know all the and the turtles and the association and all these sorts of bands. And um, so I, I was I was very aware of the fact that with um, the Buffalo Band, I, I was I was very much restricted. So I was just I, I used to just look in the paper because in the Liverpool Echo at those times, I, I don't know whether you ever remember yourself, there used to be a column called Artists, I think he's Artists and Entertainers or something. That's right. It was, yeah, it was in the sort of front where the um, entertainment section was. It wasn't in the jobs bit, you know. So there was always little jobs advertised, you know, bass player wanted, drummer wanted for this, that, the other. And then I saw an advert one day and it said something like vocalist wanted for band um, going into the studio very shortly, you know, which so I immediately thought, oh, this is band with a recording contract, you know. Yeah. Um, so, and in those, <laughs> sounds like it's a hundred years ago, but in those days there was none of this, you know, mobile phones and internet and everything else. So you what, actually. What year fit, are we talking about with this? Uh, um, Nineteen hundred, frozen to death. Don't <laughs> say it'll make me everyone realise that I'm about a hundred years old, you know. But it was in the late sixties. Late sixties. You know, yes, yeah. you know. So I'm ninety-eight. <laughs> but um, I you actually wrote and it said you know box number so I wrote uh, I wrote and uh, about a week later I got the phone call from uh, from Norman who was the leader of the band at the time and uh, he told me about it and essentially what it was is that he and he had uh, it was him and two two girl singers one was Val who was his uh, girlfriend at the time uh, and the other girl was called Kathy. 
who eventually transpires a long time afterwards was Sporty Spice's mum or is Sporty Spice's mum. Ah, okay. But wasn't at the time, obviously. So anyway, Norman told me about them and uh, he said they were essentially a, a looking to be a, a, a four-part harmony band, two boys, two girls, which I was thrilled to bits about. Um, and would I audition for them, you know? And the idea was that they were going in the recording studio when they were ready. So it, it, there was nothing official and, you know, no recording deal or anything. Um, but Norman had these uh, plans and visions, which was, uh, you know, was really exciting, especially when I was, uh, I don't know, 17, 18 at the time, you know. So anyway, they came down to my, my mum's house and, in the front room and um, auditioned me, you know, and uh, I remember I did uh, a song called Morning Glory uh, by Tim Buckley, uh, and then a song called Valentine's Song. And uh, and I think, finding out a bit later, that Norman wasn't very convinced, but the two girls thought I had a half-decent voice, you know, so, and f- probably because nobody else either auditioned or nobody auditioned that was any better than me. Uh, I got I got the job. You know, they phoned me three or four days later and said, uh, you know, you're in. So I was. Oh, uh, how did that feel? Amazing. I was dancing in the streets, so to speak. You know, because <laughs> it was my first real band, if you know what I mean. Because yeah. the other band I'd been in, we'd formed, and then we started rehearsing. We used to rehearse in Norman's uh, dad's house, mum and dad's house in De- Beach Dean Road in Anfield. So how, to, how did you how did you find out that Norman wasn't so keen initially? Did he did he tell you this? It, it, no, he told me afterwards. You know, what, I think what it, did he say? I think he was delighted to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> now, came good mates. You know, I yeah. say we're having dinner. The, the, you know, the, my wife and I and Barbara and Val and Norman and Val. Um, and this is what good mates do, isn't it? Good, good yeah. mates wind rip, each other up. Yeah, yeah, rip into each other, don't you? Really, so. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it was good, and we, you know, we started rehearsing. He's a very hard taskmaster. If he if he hears this, he he, he will agree with me, you know. But that's what we needed, you know. It's uh, we used to rehearse maybe three nights, four nights a week at his house, you know, yeah. to get the get the songs because it was four part harmony. So, and and the other thing about harmony, you know, you're probably aware, unless you're all singing the same. You know the phrasing's the same and the consonants That's are the right. same and the vowel sound. It it sounds awful, you know, because you're coming in. T- yeah, and, and that's one of the hardest thing about recording, you know, when you do a, a, a record and you sing your own lead vocals, if you're harmonising with yourself, you might yeah. sing it note for note correct in terms yeah. of the pitch, but you're all over the place in terms of the phrasing, so you have to do it again anyway. It's really difficult. That's right, and uh, and as I say, he's a very, very hard taskmaster, but looking back, really... Um, it was the very best thing that could could have happened, you know. To so that when we when we did go out, you know, we we we, we went into the recording studio probably about four or five months after we got together. Uh, we didn't go out before then, you know. We went into Cam Studios in Moorfields, uh, which was run by a guy called Charlie Weston, and uh, it was up some flights of stairs in Moorfields, just up from the the new Moorfields station as it is now. So was this all self-finance at this point, or had you got a deal? Yeah, the, yeah. Self-financed. No, 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 no. Self-financed. Yeah, I don't know how much it cost, but I mean, it wouldn't be much now in in today's terms. But it was probably a few bob then, right? Yeah. Really, you know. Uh, and we went in and did. Uh, we went, I think we went in and did two songs, or maybe four songs. Um, probably three three originals and maybe one cover, you know, to show what we could do. How long did uh, that take you? The recording session. 
Uh, they can't be long, you know what I mean? Maybe you booked a half day, you know, or three or four hours because, you know, you just didn't have the money, really. Yeah. Uh, so uh, but so they, I'm, I'm just thinking because, like, the very first time I recorded, I was completely naive. And I did oh, a 10-track yeah. album in six hours. <laughs> and in my head, I was thinking, well, how long can it possibly take? It's only three minutes a song. That's right. But, but bands spend months and years, don't they, in the recording studio? But it wasn't like that in the 60s, really, was no, it? No, 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 it wasn't. Um, I mean, it certainly wasn't for us because, you know, we couldn't have spent any, any more money than we possibly had. And Charlie Weston, who ran it, who I can just about visualise now, obviously he was a businessman, you know. And I, yeah. he was probably, I, I might be getting it wrong, but he, he was probably in about his 50s, maybe his 60s, you know. I think an awful lot of musicians... W- would have used camp um, because Amazon wasn't around then. It was basically, and but of course, to me, who'd never been in a recording studio, it was like it was amazing. You know, yeah. just the fact that it was in Moorfields didn't really matter. You know, it was you know it was just amazing. I'd never been in a recording studio. Never really heard myself on a thingy. Uh, you know, played back. So we must have. It must have been very thrilling for us actually. But we were. You know, we were rehearsed and rehearsed, so it wouldn't have taken us a great deal of time vocally, you know, to put the tracks down once we'd got it sorted technically. Yeah, and I, th- I think actually that's one of the things that a lot of musicians miss today. They go into the studio and they're not tight. Yeah. And when I did it in six hours, I rehearsed and rehearsed. So when we went in the studio, it wasn't a rehearsal space. It was just to get down what we, we already had really firm and tight. And it sounds like yeah. you did the same. Yeah, and I think nowadays as well, you know, with with, with music changing so so drastically, um, I mean, the band I'm in now has just done an album, and I know you do your own albums, and and so many of the artists that I bring in and book do their own albums. Yeah. You certainly don't waste any time, you know. You go in totally prepared because you know time is money. And and what happened with that demo that you recorded? Um, well, you know, we made tapes. I think they were reel to reels. Then it wasn't, you know, it wasn't cassettes. You know, it was probably one up from wax cylinders at the time. You know, we were yeah. on reel to reel things and, and little tiny ones. And uh, Norman sent them off, you know, to everybody. I think there was a book you could get the music and something directory you could buy. And, you know, we, we sent them everywhere, really. Um, everyone, every record label you can think of. And then about three or four weeks later, I think it was, Norman phoned me up over the moon, you know, and we'd had a reply back from a, a publisher called Feldman's, yeah, uh, which was a very big publishing company at the time. I think it still is, really. Um, and they w- were excited with what they'd heard, the originals, the songs that we'd done. Uh, we did a, a song called Ride in a Carousel and the other one called Now You Can Fly and a song called... Uh, Oh God, Cleveland Square, which is about Cleveland Square that used to be in town. And anyway, they were thrilled to bits, and they wanted us to come down to um, Dean Street, I think it was. Um, and because we were we were over absolutely over the moon, you know. So we went down. Um, so where London. was Dean Street? Was it in London? Was it central London? Yes, central Tim London. Alley. Yeah, I think it's Tim Pan Alley. That's like, you okay. know Denmark Street. Dean oh, Street, I know. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I played in yeah. Denmark Street. Yeah. Yeah, and we went down and. I, you know, got to remember my recollections of this. You know, my my, my memory is not what it was, but I certainly you know we when we went down, we we met them and uh, the the guy who wanted us, Harold actually Harold Franz, his name was, and uh, he was over the moon, thought we were great, you know, and said he could get us a deal and uh, and cut a long story short, you know, we came home on the train high as a kite and um, they 
kept us kept in touch and then probably within about three or four weeks we were down we were signed to um phillips yeah and uh the first recording session was in marble arch studios wow and the the day we went down uh dusty springfield was just finishing and coming out you know oh, so yeah you know we were in the big time sort of yeah. thing and uh, we went in we how went in and did the same as how old are you at this point Carl? getting your first um, record deal maybe late 18 maybe 19 you know that that sort of age you know 18 late late 18s early 19s and, and had you actually been to london before or was that your first uh, time no. I don't, think, I don't think I had, no, 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 yeah. no. So we got to choose. I remember I had very long hair, you know. Uh, yeah. Very long hair. I remember getting on the train uh, to, to London with Val and Norman and, and Joan, and, and we were, the girls were in maxi coats, you know, and yeah. very, hip, very hippie-ish, and Norman was in a fur coat or something like that. And I was in a suede coat with bell-bottoms. It was all bell-bottoms <laughs> in those days, you know. And I had very long hair, and I remember walking down the aisle of the train, you know, with lots of business people and getting tutted at it, <laughs> which was great, you know, yeah. it made it feel more real. And, and then we, we, we did the session, and again, like you, you know, we, 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 there was no wasting time, you know. Harold Franz, the guy who signed us at uh, Feldman's, his brother was a very famous arranger and musician. I think it was Johnny Franz, and he was Dusty Springfield's, you know, uh, guru arranger. Uh, you know, um, guide, so to speak. So I think I, I don't know whether Johnny Franz took the session that we were on, but we did. We did the two songs in the one session. You know, um, the A side was uh, 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 "Ride in a Carousel" by Norman, and the B side was "Now You Can Fly," and it was all harmonies. You know, and uh, we were absolutely thrilled to bits. You know, I don't. I, to be honest with you, in those days, I don't. I think we even got a playback, you know. I don't think they played it back to us. Really? Yeah. So I they think just took it and then they, they did their thing with yeah. it and you didn't even hear it? No, no. I have a feeling we didn't. And uh, they sent us home. That was it. You know, thanks, guys. And we came out and Marble Arch and probably danced around again, you know, ran down yeah. the streets, clicking our heels and get on the train back. But uh, I think it was a, it was probably three or four weeks later. It wasn't in... Nothing was instant in those days, you know what I mean? Yeah. Every... You know, you can put something down now and you can pretty well mix it, can't you? Or they'll give you a That's rough right. mix to take away and this, that, and the other. All the digital side is totally different. But I remember uh, it was probably three or four weeks later, maybe, and Norman received the acetates. Um, and they were acetate, you know, which yeah. is like like shellac. Shellac, I think it is, maybe. So what's uh, that? I've still got... what, 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 describe that for us. Well, you know, it's not that. You know, it, it came out on vinyl. Obviously, the records came out on vinyl. Yeah. But they, they didn't put it down on on vinyl they put it thing they call it acetate and uh, it was like a hard very hard plastic um okay. as i say I, i've still got copies under the stairs of the um i think they sent us a few copies each so I've, I've still got the original you know um and of course when we put it on the on the turntable we were it, well you, you just couldn't believe it could you, you know because they'd put echo yeah on it and you know all the things that you know, you wanted it. It sounded like a record. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you, you felt like you were you were proper. Yeah, proper. Yeah, really yeah. Pro proper. <laughs> <laughs> so you you actually cut some singles as a result of that, didn't you? And and it led to kind of like TV work and all stuff like that. Yeah, well, the single that was those two songs were the first single came out on uh, Phillips, and as I say, I think you can still find them on the YouTube on YouTube on the Petticoat and Vine. Um, and then um, but they gave us a young manager, Tim, and um, he got us 
he phoned us up. I think the first TV show we ever did was the Harry Seacombe show. Uh, and again, that's on YouTube. If right. you the clip. And, um, and Harry Seacombe was huge, wasn't he? Because he'd, he'd been... Yeah. He'd been in the Goon Show, and yeah. so he was like a real top top billing uh, British entertainer, Harry Seacombe at the time. Yeah, very much. So. I mean, you know, there was it, it was light entertainment, wasn't it? So there was like you know Sunday Night of the London Palladium and all these things, and the Harry Seacombe Show and Jimmy Tarbuck Show, all those sort of things were big. You know, on a Sunday you stayed in and watched them with your folks and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, uh, and but he was lovely. You know, he was a really nice guy, but um, you. you what happened is you did it live with the the with the orchestra because we had an orchestra you see because there was an orchestra on the album on on the single yeah. the orchestra was in another room and it was all done through speakers if I remember right they're like monitors almost okay. um, and you you were announced and if you see the video there's a video somebody in the work I was I was I was in work at the time and somebody took a, a cine camera of the oh wow. And it's up on YouTube, but you can, uh, we did it. I mean, we had to do it about 10 times because we kept losing uh, touch with the the speed with the orchestra, you know? Yeah. Uh, and they kept having to stop it in front of a live audience. And the great thing is, very nice, they blamed the orchestra, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, as if, as if, you know, these guys have been doing it for a million years, you know? But to say, take the weight off us. But if you, if you see the video, uh, we look terrified. I mean... Petrified. And were you terrified? Yeah, we were petrified. How many people looked, were you in front of? Uh, well, the old studio audience. It was probably in a, it was in, in the BBC down in Shepherd's Bush, I think. You know, so yeah, uh, probably probably three or four hundred people, I would think. You know, and, 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 the, out, and the cameras and out in the real world watching TV. How, how many would tune in for this? Ah, uh, I don't know. There was no other thing to watch, was there? Then you know, yeah, it was that's like, what I mean. Uh, it was on BBC. Which was like, you know, I think there was BBC, ATV or ITV, and that was it. So, yeah. so there would have been millions watching this, and you'd have probably been aware of that. Oh, yeah, 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 probably. But yeah, if you have a little look, you can see, <laughs> you know, look like we're going to die. <laughs> uh, but we got away, you know, we got out, we got, you got away with it, as we say. So, so what are your favourite memories of that time? Because you did quite a few shows, didn't you? You say you do that, that you did like uh, yeah. Jimmy Tarbuck, Harry Seacombe, you did the Benny Hill show. I, I hesitate yeah, to ask what you were doing on there, Col. <laughs> well, we we actually well we did we did the Jimmy Tarbuck show yeah and we did the Jimmy Tarbuck show over Christmas we think it was the Christmas special which was which was fantastic you know and I, I remember coming home for Christmas because we had to go back and do another show but we came home for Christmas and uh, my parents' house everybody used to come together you know all the family yeah relations and we all sat and watched uh, we all sat and watched the, the Jimmy Tarbuck show with us on it you know which yeah. was fantastic. Um, and then with the Benny Hill show, you, you you actually got a script, you know, because um, you did your single, but you took part in a sketch. Oh, okay. Uh, um, <laughs> so we took <laughs> so we took, took part in a top of the pop sketch. You did so a what? So we're supposed to be on top of the pop. Top of the pop. So supposed okay. to be a sketch about yeah. And uh, Norman and I don't dance, you know. I'm the worst dancer in the world, <laughs> and Norman doesn't dance, you know. He's the worst, or he's as bad as me. And uh, the idea was they would be pushing. There was a camera pushing through a top of the pops crowd. You know, they used to have people yeah. dancing in their teenagers. Yeah. And then they would knock them out of the way and everything. Well, of course, the two teenagers was me and Norman and the <laughs> girls. You know, and so you can see how badly we danced as <laughs> our awkward and horrible we looked. You know, but it, it was great fun. You know, and he was. They were all great. All of those people. You know, Harry Seacombe was really nice. Jimmy Tarbuck was terrific. Um, Kenny Lynch, who was doing Jimmy Tarbuck's show with him, you know, he yeah. was a big part of uh, Jimmy Tarbuck's setup. 
Um, all of them, all of them, great, great. We had great fun, you know. It was, re- you know, and at that age, you just think it's going to go on forever as well, which is yeah, another thing, you know. So, so, and then, then you got, um, then you got in with the scaffold. Who were, yeah. they were huge in the sixties, weren't they? The scaffold. So, it was, it was Mike McCartney, yeah. wasn't it? Which was Paul McCartney's brother. Yeah, Mike um, McGear. Yeah. And who's the guy from Over the Water? Um, um, John, John Gorman. That, that's right, John Gorman. From Tiswas. That's yeah. right. And uh, the fabulous Roger McGough, you know, the yes, poet. Yes, of course, yeah. And they well, did things like Lily the Pink and Lily, um, thank, thank You, you very, very Much, much. the Entry Iron and all that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so, and you became their backing band. Yeah, what happened was my sister Karen, um, she went to school in Duffdale Road and in her class was Nathan Monaghan who eventually became, I think, the Happy Mondays manager. Oh, wow. Um, but he's the son of Roger McGough and uh, uh, ever one to look for an opportunity. When she told me that Roger McGough was Nathan's dad, um, she told me where uh, Roger lived, you know, in in uh, Sefton Park, Prince's Parkway. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I wrote another letter. Okay. <laughs> And said, you know, we do this, that, and the other. And uh, if you ever, I was looking to see if you'd, they would just have us on, you know. Um, but we used to do a lot of live gigs at O'Connor's Tavern, which is um, halfway down Hardman Street. It's something else now. Um, and I just wrote in the letter that we often played on O'Connor's Tavern. So if they were looking for a band, you know. Anyway, one day I got a phone call, um, and they said, uh, Roger, it was Roger on the other end. Said, um, we'll come and see you tonight. At O'Connor's Tavern, you know. So we were playing, and uh, all of a sudden, the scaffold walked in wow. and sat in the audience, you know, which really, you know, <laughs> puts the fear of God in you. And, but anyway, we played and we did all the harmony stuff and everything else. And we were playing, it was t- me and Norman on guitar and the two girls on, uh, and the four of us on vocals, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Did, didn't have drums or anything like that. And But they, at the end of it, they said, uh, Would you consider, you know, coming on tour with us and, and playing with us, backing us sort of thing. So we did, and uh, we used to go and rehearse at um, Over the Water in Heswell, which at uh, Paul's, Paul McCartney's dad's house. Oh, really? Bungalow, yeah. yeah. So so you were in Paul McCartney's dad's house? Yes. It's a fair, <laughs> what did they say, six steps away from somebody famous, you know, but... Uh, I, the thing they say, don't they, everyone's six steps away from, you know. Yeah, but you're one step there, Paul, really, well, aren't you? We're a bungalow away. We were a bungalow away. Yeah. Um, and I think we, I th- it's a long time ago, but I'm sure his, his dad was Jim, wasn't it? And uh, I'm sure we met his dad and his stepmom. And uh, and the other thing I have a memory of, and this might be delusion, but I'm certain it's one day we were rehearsing there and uh, a big dog came in, a very skinny dog, big dog, you know? Yeah. And um, his mum or stepmom ran in um, and chased her out and said, Martha, Martha, out. Ah, uh, and apparently it was apparently it was uh, Paul's sheepdog that they were looking after. You know, which Martha, my dear, maybe in your in your mind, then you think Martha, my dear, don't yeah. you? That's what you think. I wonder if it's the same one. You know, if it's but, named after the dog, yeah, yeah, or if it's just me, you know, mixing everything up, really. But I always remember driving back through the Mersey Tunnel in my in my beetle pulled Anglia, thinking to myself, it was almost it was almost surreal. You know, I've just been in Paul McCartney. Mike McGee's uh, uh, dad's uh, bungalow, and uh, you know, and the Beatles were still massive. You know, well, they're still massive now, aren't they? You know yeah. what I mean? But but for, for, for me and Norman and Val and Joan and whoever, um, it, it was such a big 
you know, such a big deal, really, because there was there was mementos around the place, you know. And I think they actually offered us they had loads of duty free cigarettes. That seems to stick in my mind, you know. Yeah. Benson and Hedges, and I think I brought two hundred cigarettes back, you know, that they <laughs> either Paul or Mike had, because there was just loads of cigarettes in, yeah. in these cupboards, I think, you know. So uh, I, I mean, I don't smoke, but I think I brought them back for my dad. <coughs> but um, it was it was a big thrill, you know, at that age. Oh yeah, I can imagine. And then then you went on to um, play the Royal Variety Show, which is. I well, mean, yeah. it's, it's always big, but back then, Col, it was enormous, wasn't it? It was a much bigger uh, thing. Like you say, there was, there was, there were very few TV channels in those days, and this was kind of the pinnacle, wasn't it, of uh, the entertainment year? Yeah, that's right. Well, what it was, we did, we did a lot of touring. Well, we did quite a few tours with, or quite a few gigs all over the country with the scaffold. What we didn't realise, we thought we were going to be staying in hotels, by the way, but down on the train with the scaffold, you know, which was... Which was great fun, you know, because John John Gorman is hysterical, you know. Oh, John yeah. Gorman, yeah, just he just as you and Pete all the time. So on the train, it was like another, it was a whole show, you know. Yeah. But we did we did the show with uh, the. So staff. were you not staying in hotels because you dropped out? Well, then? What happened? Well, we thought we were going to be staying in hotels, but we were playing with the students, uh, you know, Messi in Cardiff or whatever. You know, we used to sing Lily the Pink and thank you very much with them and everything. And then at the after the show, they asked for anybody who could put the backing band. So the idea was that I'd be slept on the floor of any students or any kind person in the audience. So, you know, we got a rude awakening. So, okay, you're doing, <laughs> so you're doing a gig. And at this point, when you start playing, you've no idea where you're staying that night. And then halfway through the, halfway through the gig, you're then offered up to, um, to the students' generosity. Is that basically how it worked? Yeah, yeah, that we they would say you know anybody can put the band up and uh, you know we end up we ended up wherever we ended up and as I say because it's so long ago I can't remember half the places we ever went to you know but uh, and then we used to we did things like Newcastle um, there was an arts arts festival we used to, we'd go up there and sometimes we'd stay in apartments and well, flats you know but it was all it was just great it was great great fun but what happened was that uh, they were opening the um, the second Mersey Tunnel. Is it the Kingsway? I always get confused, Carl, but I know the one you mean. Yeah, and uh, they were ask- they were asking all you know famous Liverpool musicians. Well, obviously they couldn't get the Beatles, but I think they had the Searchers and Jerry and uh, um, Jimmy Tarbuck, and of course the Scaffold were at the height, so the Scaffold were included. So they also the Scaffold then asked us if we would do it. So where, um, whereabouts was the Variety Show that year? Was it in Liverpool? Yeah, it's in the Empire. Okay. Uh, uh, in front of the Queen, and um, I've still got the uh, program. They they did a program, and the great thing is the scaffold actually mentioned us in it. So it's not just the scaffold; it says the scaffold with Pascal and Fine. Yeah. Um, and I remember the night; it was great. We 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 went and had a drink in Mar Edgerton's, I think. Oh yeah. Best. Uh, and yet, you, you know, we had passes to get through because there was crowds outside. You know, because of being the Queen. Yeah. And then we rehearsed and everything, and uh, we had to, you know, they rehearsed us bowing, you know, to the balcony bit where the Queen would be. Oh, no, the Queen was at the back, in, in this circle at the back, you know. Okay, so you had so to we, rehearse your bow. Yeah, all that stuff, you know. <laughs> and we were playing with Ken Dodd as well, and the Diddy Men, they were big parts of the show. And the, yeah. the Diddy Men are these kids, little kids, with big tyres wrapped around the waists. Yeah. And, and the costume to make them look fat. So, oh, is that how it works, is it? Yeah, is it? yeah. Oh, well, that's I've right, learned something yeah. new there. I didn't know that. <laughs> Just in case you'd ever asked, you know. Yeah. 
And uh, but when we, when we were playing, by the way, you could see the Queen. You know, you, you sort of well, I certainly felt it could. You know, you felt yeah. this felt you were in the presence of somebody. Yeah. Um, and then at the very end, when everything we all came back on and bowed, you know, everyone comes to the stage and the curtains closed, and then you had to get up the stairs to the first floor somewhere where the Queen was going to meet people. You know. Yeah. Um, but we couldn't get past the Diddy men on the stage because on the stairs because there was Diddy men everywhere. You know. <laughs> And you, they were just jammed, I think, you know, those yeah. diddy men jammed up the stairs and you, you, you're trying to kick diddy, diddy men out the way. And But by the time we got to the top of the stairs, it was too late. Yeah. The, the diddy men did for us, you know. It's interesting, actually, as well, because after after this, you ended up being in, in the band of someone who's kind of a personal hero of mine, um, John McGrath, who, for those who don't know... Um, I mean, I only got into him quite recently, actually, Cole, because I read his book, A Good Night Out, and it's basically about radical work and class theatre and how it should yeah. work. And he was, yeah. a, I'd say, I don't know, probably over the last 40, 50 years, say, he, he's been the biggest voice in radical theatre in this country. That's so you, right. Yeah. You had, like, he, Joan Littlewood and Ewan McCall, and then he was the next wave, and there's been nobody like him, really, since. And you yeah. were in his band, weren't you? Well, we, we were in his... We, we were in this mute. What happened was he, he ran the Seven Eighty Four. That's right. Theatre company. Yeah. Um, and they were and... a radical theatre company, weren't they? That tackled yeah. all yeah. sorts of social issues, and we're, and we're, we're particularly directed at a working class audience. That's right. That's right. Um, we were unaware of that at the time, but um, Norman, who 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 was the leader of the band, um, wrote wrote all our songs. I mean, I wrote a couple of songs, you know, because I, I tried my best. And I've had this conversation with you in the past about writing songs. Yeah. But Norma was very, and still is very prolific, you know. Um, and uh, I suppose we were sort of, we were a little flavour of the month, you know, because we were on television and had made records. So we were reasonably, reasonably well known in Liverpool. Yeah. And I think what had happened is the Everyman had commissioned John McGraw or John McGraw had approached the Everyman because he wanted to do a musical um, and it was going to be called Soft or a Girl. And I couldn't understand, first of all, what that meant. But it, it's a, it was a, a Liverpool phrase, if you mean. What are you, soft or a girl? Oh, I get you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I yeah, didn't yeah. realise that. Yeah. But they'd approached the Everyman, and, and somehow I don't know whether it was through the scaffold, maybe you know the connection, because we played we played the Everyman a few times ourselves. Um, we put on a few concerts there with different people that we knew, and and all. So we would involve a tiny bit with with Adrian Henry in some way, oh, I think. Yeah. Oh, pro- probably through Roger and that, you know what I mean? Yeah, because he's another Liverpool poet, but, isn't he, Adrian Henry? That's right, yeah. and he was massive at the time. And the Liverpool scene was massive at the time, you know, with the band itself, you know. So there was a sort of tiny bit of, a, 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 you know, a, a, a link-up. But anyway, Norman got a call from the Everyman to say, uh, this guy, John McGraw, wanted, he's a playwright, wanted to put this musical together. And he was going to write the words, but he wanted the music and they wanted the band to perform in the musical. Yeah. Um, so we were thrilled to bits about that. And uh, give Norman his due, he spent an awful long time um, putting the words of John McGraw to uh, to music. Yeah. And um, and the, the the show itself is <clears throat> is um, set just after the, or during the war um, uh, in Liverpool. And um, the, we we rehearsed. And we, you know, we met John McGraw many times, and we used to rehearse in town. And John McGraw would come and 
tell us, you know, maybe we change some of the words and change the emphasis on the songs and everything. What was it and like, then, just, just out of my own curiosity of, of doing um, a bit of hero worshipping? Yeah, very nice, very very tall, if I remember, you know, yeah. sort of tweed jacket, um, bohemian style guy. Um, very, very nice, very nice. Uh, obviously very creative and... Uh, you know, the more we looked into what he'd done and who he'd worked, he, I think he directed or written a film called The Bofors Gun. Right. Uh, you know, so he did Hollywood things as well, you know. That's so we right, were, he did. And he, he did Zed Cars, I think, as well, yeah. didn't he? Yeah. So we were very much in awe of him, you know, but he was very friendly. Um, and then, then we we rehearsed all the music, what's he, weeks and weeks. And, of course, rehearsing the music in isolation from the rest of the play and the dialogue, yeah. it, you couldn't make any sense of it, you know. And then we would start, we would then start rehearsals in the Everyman. And Alison Steadman was in the Everyman uh, company then. Yeah, and um, she's a really huge actress now, isn't that's she? That's right. Yeah. And she, but she was, you know, she was just a bit older than us at the time. Roger Sloman, another great actor who was on all the time. Lo- yeah. Lots of people who've gone on to other things. I just can't remember them all now. But we met them and we started to rehearse with them. And of course, then, you, then you're in the theatre for the first time. I'd never been in a theatre before. Oh, the rehearsals, they do those crazy warm-ups, you know, where somebody oh, mentions yeah. an animal or a tree and then they all become trees or they all become <laughs> animals. And, like, the four of us would be sitting there going, you know, these people are stupid. This yeah. is stupid, you know. Actors this is weird, not going to yeah. work. <laughs> oh, yeah, actors are weird, you know. Um, but then, as, as the, anyway, the, the rehearsals then became, you know, full rehearsals. And, then and we, as I say, we were on stage all the time because yeah. there was dialogue and then there was a song which was part of the dialogue well this is what he tried to do didn't he 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 tried to he tried to bring a narrative to what would be kind of um and i remember in his book he talked about this social club in uh in in chorlton come hardy somewhere in manchester anyway and he was talking about how it was basically like a variety night and that's what he tried to bring didn't he which is no doubt why he wanted a band there because you know that's what people expected on a good night out that's right that's right um the, we, we, I remember, I remember the, the dress rehearsals and then the final rehearsal, you know, before the opening night. Uh, or we did a preview, you know, the way they do where they, the press come and everything else. Yes, yeah. And that was the first time that uh, we had sort of taken it all as one, if you know what I mean. And, um, I, 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 and it was great. I, I was really excited by it, but I thought, what the hell are the, uh, an audience going to make of this, if you yeah. know what I mean? And then we did the first night, and it was full, you know. Um, and at the end of the, you know, the, we finished, the show finished, and there was like a silence. And then the place erupted, you know. Yeah. It was. It, it took my breath away. It, <laughs> it, it, it went down an absolute storm, you know. And uh, we were just gobsmacked by it because we just didn't know whether it was going to one way or the other. You know, we weren't theatrical people in any way, shape or form. And then the Echo and the Daily Post the next day and the Guardian and you know, the Manchester Guardian. It was all like, you know, the reviews were fantastic. Yeah. So uh, we then did 12 weeks, I think it was. It went on for 12 weeks, you know. And, uh, it was fantastic experience because we used to go down, you know, I used to arrive maybe or we, we would arrive six o'clock in the evening and the actors would be on the auditorium stretching and doing all the crazy exercises. <laughs> and, and then we'd just, and then, you'd, you know, you'd mosey onto the stage. And the great thing about it was, after having gone down for the first week, you know, a storm at the end of every show. Yeah. You just couldn't wait for the end of the show because that was your reward, you know? Yeah, it, yeah. You know, it was like you just knew what was coming, you know, that it would stop and then the place would go balmy. And did you notice in being in the show? Because the thing he is he's well known for is that 
he kind of changed the demographic of people who went to the theatre while he was involved. It was people yeah. who didn't normally go to the theatre were coming in droves to the Everyman to see John McGrath's shows. Did you get that sense that yeah. it was a different audience? Yeah, I did, and and that's and that's because I mean the Echo, of course, were great, you know, uh, supporters of the Everyman and and of the show. So, you know, lots of ordinary people, so to speak, if you use the word ordinary, as yeah. you say, people who wouldn't have gone probably went because it was a musical, and they called it a rock musical as well. Yeah. Um, so that that helped, you know. Um, we're, and we're they've been doing that ever since, haven't they? I mean, they always have the rock and roll panto. Yeah. So that's that's a legacy that that you and him have left really for the people of Liverpool that they're still doing these rock and roll pantos and musicals yeah. ever since. Yeah, well, certainly he he has. I don't know. I don't know whether we had a great deal to do with it, you know. But uh, I mean, as as I say, Norman who did the music worked particularly hard, you know. And we 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 still got all the mementos. I think we've got the scripts and I've got posters and and flyers because they you know they really go to town and the everyman don't they when they yeah. put on a production i've got boxes of stuff like that you know i show them to the kids you know and it just goes right over their heads you know, <laughs> not interested at all <laughs> very polite you know but it's nice to look back on them and, and see oh, yeah. you know, uh, the involvement and it and it was it, it, you know it gives a bit of a uh, bit of kudos really to be involved with something like that you know so there you have it, the life and times of Colin Maddox. And if you want to know what Colin is up to at the moment musically, then check out the Grateful Fred ukulele trio. That's at gratefulfredukuleletrio.co.uk. And I'll put that link, as well as some links to the performances from Petticoat and Vine that Colin mentioned, all in the show notes. Now, if you want to check out where to find those show notes or to listen to other podcasts or read any of my writings then you can go to alanparry.com just remember that alan is spelled the welsh way which is a-l-u-n so that's a-l-u-n parry.com and i'll see you on the next episode thanks for listening take care and bye